Welcome in to another edition of the Doyle and Derek podcast here at IndyStar.com. I'm your host, Derek Schultz, and the star of the show, as always, who has not yet been eliminated from the bubble, it is Greg Doyle. What's up, my man? How are you? No, 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 no. I was eliminated from the bubble the day the bubble was announced. Um, when, when I heard that if, you ha- if you're going to go, you got to commit to going for X number of weeks or months or whatever it was. And um, I know this makes me unlike most people, but the idea of an all expenses paid two months in Orlando in a hotel, which to some people sounds like heaven. No, thank you. Like, so I've been, I've been out of the bubble since the bubble was announced, but, but even having said that I tried harder to win the Pacers did. Yeah. Uh, not a good effort last night. It really just a good effort in this series. Um, they went down without much of a fight. And I think Greg, what really kind of fascinated me about that matchup just in general is that don't get me wrong. The heat are very good. And that's a very well put together team. The pieces make sense. Like there's a difference between a really talented team and a really well put together team. And I think you're seeing that with Miami compared to Philadelphia. Philadelphia's got all the talent in the world. The pieces don't fit. Horford doesn't fit on that team. Tobias Harris is making way too much money. They don't fit. All the pieces fit with Miami and they all have a role and they all know what that role is and they all can execute it. So I'm not saying this to take anything away from them. I think the Pacers are pretty good. I think they're better than what they showed. Seven games against that team, though, I never once thought in any second of any game that the Pacers were the better team. And that very rarely happens. You know, on the one hand, it's remarkable. And Nate McMillan and the team deserves a lot of credit for finishing one game ahead of the Heat in the standings. On the one hand, that is remarkable. It really is. Because we both saw they're not nearly as good as the, as the Heat. And yet that means they brought it almost every night in the regular season. They never mailed it in. And there's a lot to be said for that. And I wrote that after game two or three, something along the lines of, you know, playoffs are different in the regular season because playing hard doesn't get it done in the, in the playoffs. Pacers play hard. It's not good enough. The Heat just, I mean, they were much better and they're one game less than this. Anyway, the point is, on the one hand, it's a backhanded compliment. The, the Pacers, well done to finish ahead of them in the regular season. And I mean that. On the other hand, the playoffs was when you find out what you really have. And the Pacers really don't have very much. Yeah, and so much of it, Greg, you know this from covering teams forever, so much of it is the context of the season. And just in a vacuum, if you were to look at this season, I think most people would think, hey, they were the four seed in the East. They had complete roster turnover. They missed Oladipo for the first half of the year. Brogdon was banged up constantly. They didn't have Sabonis for the bubble. I think most people would look at that season beforehand and think, yeah, you know what? That's right in line with where my expectations are for this year's Pacers. But the context is, is that this is now the sixth straight year that the Pacers have not won a playoff series. This is the third time in four years that they've been swept out of the first round and the fourth time in a row that they've been bounced out of the first round just in general. And I think when you add in that context, that's where kind of the frustration comes in for the fans. Yeah, because what you, you don't see a team that has done what you just said all these years in a row, and yet you can tell that next year's coming. Like with the 76ers, of course, it's, it never happened. But with the Sixers, you could always – you had the hope that, you know, they're about two years away. They're a year away. The Pacers are one year away from being the exact same team they were this year and the mm-hmm. same team they were two years ago and three years ago. And for me, for – ever since I got here, that's been enough for me. And I don't mean as a, as a fan. I just mean as a critic of this franchise. I've never been too terribly critical of their inability to go much farther because I realize the lack of talent is hard to win the playoffs and yada, yada, yada. At the same time, it's different this offseason that we're about to enter because the Pacers have 
they've got options. They usually don't have any options. Their best option is just to hope that somebody comes back. Paul George, please come back. This year, their option they've got options, including Miles Turner. Do you trade him? Sabonis, do you trade him? No. Um, Oladipo, do you trade him? And I'm sure we'll get into that a lot more, but but there are reasons you might want to. So they've got options. And I, I think standing pat and just kind of hoping they do the same thing next year is insanity because w- last night showed us all that they're just not good enough, A. And B, the makeup of this roster, they quit. Listen, I, I watched the game and I didn't – I mean, there were a few times T.J. Warren just had no interest in playing defense. There was a few times he had no interest in, in uh, defending the rim. I'm talking about T.J. Warren. And other guys, Malcolm Brogdon did not distinguish himself a few times. I saw a couple things, Old Depot. Um, having said that, overall, I thought they tried. And yet, when you get out-rebounded 60-34, to 34, you're really not trying very hard. Yeah, I think there were there were some hustle problems. And I'm not going to sit here and say that the Pacers fought their, to, to borrow a Nate McMillan term, fought their asses off. I, don't, I didn't see that last night. But I just think, you know, the, the offense to me, Greg – it's just stuck in the mud. It's unimaginative, and they just kind of go through the motions out there. And when they don't have somebody who has an insanely hot hand like Warren or Oladipo, it, it, it just is is everybody's just kind of like complacent. It feels like, and it's frustrating to see because this is a really good team defensively, and they have the buy-in over there. And I just wish that maybe they would be a little more exotic offensively, and maybe they don't feel like they have the pieces to do that, but. Um, you know, I would like to see some – and it's part of the reason why I think fans have been a little bit more critical of Nate McMillan because he's not known as an offensive-minded head coach, and the Pacers really don't have that. They have Dan Burke as their defensive coordinator, but what about the offense? Who is that guy for them? Can they add that guy, or can they bring in a head coach who could be that guy? And until then, I think you're going to see maybe not what you saw last night where the Pacers were just awful offensively. I don't think they're an awful offensive team, but they're just a really mediocre one. Yeah, but you know when you say they maybe 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 they didn't have the pieces, and you're just trying to give them some slack to to be exotic on offense. The Pacers had just about the most unique composition of a team in the NBA this year, in that they had a team built in 2007. You know, two two bigs, and no one does that. So the Pacers had a chance to do something exotic. Doesn't necessarily mean shooting 93s like Houston does. Is exotic means doing something other teams aren't doing, and the Pacers had two bigs and two skilled bigs. And I never got the impression that they were using their strengths to beat up the other team. I never saw that. And I don't mean just, well, then you better rebound better. I don't mean just that. In fact, I don't mean that at all. I mean, you've got two seven-footers with skill. Most teams are defending you without that. So how are you going to make that work? And the Pacers never did. And, you know, Nate McMillan is already coming back. The extension's been announced. And, and I, I mean, they could always change their mind. But I, I feel like that ship has sailed. So we can talk about that, but the ship has sailed. What yeah. they need to do – they need to go get an offensive-minded assistant coach. Go get somebody young. And unless Popeye Jones is that guy and they just haven't unleashed him, but if he was that guy, I guess we would have seen it by now. Yeah, and I don't mean exotic like be the Houston Rockets. I mean exotic like don't be last in the NBA in three-point shooting. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. this team, they don't get to the line. They're terrible at getting to the line and shooting free throws. They're terrible at three-point attempts. This is strictly a two-point basketball team. And in 2020 – what are you going to do with that? What's your ceiling being a two-point basketball team, a mid-range team? And I think that's their big problem. And they have to figure out 
how they're going to add those other elements because I, I just think that they become a little bit too easy to defend. But, you know, the whole Nate thing, let's tackle that because I know that we talked about that really on, on the last episode and he just got an extension. I'd be shocked if Nate McMillan is going anywhere. But when you look at this series, I don't think the Pacers were ever going to win this series. I don't care who they have as head coach. Uh, I don't care if they have Red Arbach. I don't, I don't think they were winning this series. The matchups were just all in favor of the Heat. But, uh, but then again, you know, Spolstra does what he does and Nate does what he does. And you see kind of the results of that. I, I don't think McMillan squeezed much juice out of the orange if there was any juice to be squeezed. No, and, and this team does have two defensive coordinators uh, in, in Burke and McMillan. And usually if you describe a team like we describe the Pacers accurately as defense is their bedrock, they are going to win with defense. Normally the, the implicit inference from that is they're going to be tougher than the other team. And they're not. Like this team is a very – I mean, they're good defensively, but they're not tougher. They, I spent three days riding around. Game two and game three, I kind of rode around calling them soft. I referred to stones in game one. Man, the, the Heat have guys with stones, like Jimmy Butler and more. In game three, I wrote about force. Man, the Heat play with force, and the Pacers don't. Finally, after game four, after being out-rebounded 60-34, after Nate McMillan excused it and said, well, I think we were tired. After that, I just came out and wrote what – I mean, what's obvious is they're just soft. And I don't know how a team built on defense is soft. And I know Sabonis would change some things, but he's not going to make T.J. Warren or Miles Turner or Old Depot um, any tougher. I think Malcolm Brogdon's got toughness. And Aaron Holiday has toughness. And nobody else has toughness on that team. You know who is pretty good in this series, and it gets lost in the shuffle because the Pacers got run out of the gym in Orlando by Miami. But after game one, I thought if you would have handed me a, a stat sheet for Miles Turner – and said, you know, 15, 10, and 4, I think is what he ended up with, points, rebounds, blocks. I would have been very pleased with that. Like, I, I thought that he responded well after a disastrous game one, but him playing well wasn't close to enough for this Pacers team to even be competitive with Miami. Turner was better by the game. Game two, he was better. Game three, he was better. Game four, I mean, he, was, he put up all-star numbers in games three and four. I mean, like, all NBA numbers. Now, granted, it's hard to do that, and he doesn't. But if you, if you do what he did, games three and four, uh, if you do what he did – for 82 games, you're on the All-NBA probably second team. I mean, he was great. Now, the problem with Turner, among other things, is that he'll do he'll have a, a couple games like that, and, and and he has for years, and we go, holy cow. You remember that West Coast swing about three years ago? Um, I Paul George was hurt or something. They went out West, and Paul George – I'm sorry, Miles Turner averaged like 30 and 12, five games in a row out West. Uh, he, he does this sometimes. Um, but anyway, he was great two, three, and four. I, I called him uh, – Basically, I called him Bambi. I called him a deer in game one. He played like a deer, no, which is not tough. And he was not that in two, three, and four. But, yeah, I mean, you looked at – I think it was game two, might have been three, where the, the entire starting five had good numbers, all of them. And they still really never had a chance to win. If you can't win when everybody in your starting five plays well, then you're just not very good. Oh, and the bench was terrible in this series. What were they outscored last night? Like forty-one to three or something. I think McDermott's McDermott hit a three. I think that was the only scoring from the bench. They were just awful. Uh, and I think part of that, Greg, is Sabonis not being there, and it's just kind of a domino effect, right? Where you're moving everybody up. Um, but I, I was really disappointed with the the second unit overall. Um, next season, is it fair to say you've been here since I want to say twenty fourteen? Uh, is it fair to say next season perhaps is the most important pacer season in your time here? Just because we're assuming, you know, everyone's under contract outside of, I think, Sampson and Justin Holiday. We're assuming McMillan is going to be back. I don't know about Oladipo and Turner, but 
let's assume that they are back. Uh, this storyline of being the plucky underdog and a nice regular season team is well past its sell-by date. The expectations are going to be, hey, get to the playoffs in advance. We don't care what happens during the season. So uh, what do you think about next year for the Pacers? This offseason is very much like, and I can't say it's any bigger uh, in the moment. I'd like to, but I, I feel like this offseason is about the same as the offseason in 2017 when Paul George was on the trading block. But the difference between this offseason and that offseason was you kind of had to know he, he needed to get traded. Unfortunately, the Pacers and Larry Bird didn't realize it until Paul George finally had his agent come out and say, um, excuse me, he's gone. You might <laughs> want to trade him because he don't want to be here anymore. You've not picked up on the cues. Apparently that guy, Greg Doyle, who everybody hates at the star because all he does is rip Paul George. Apparently he's the only one that saw it, but Paul George don't want to be here anymore. And three years later, Oladipo is not Paul George 2.0, but man, is he getting close. I mean, he's getting close. And if... If you took the name off, like, you know, sometimes in March we do instantly tournament bracket resumes, and you take the name of the team off, and you just say, this team has Tier 1 wins and blah, blah, blah. This team has Tier 1 wins and RPI, blah, blah, blah. Who would you take? And we're always, like, stunned. And, Wait a minute. I would take Duquesne over Kentucky? You know, I yeah. didn't know. Um, if we were to do an – if you could, like, before the season began, so – because we already know what's happened in the last month. But if before the season began, you listed all the things Old Depot's done, including announcing – actually letting Sharm Sharnia announce for him on Twitter that he's not playing for the team anymore this off, this postseason or in, in Orlando, including walking off the bench with 20 seconds left in game three and going to the locker room, including blaming his entire misunderstanding on the, the bubble on the media, including including just the, the, the me first. It's all about his uh, image and his logo, and, and I'm leaving some stuff out. If, if, we, if you did that blindly and said, who do you think this player is, everybody? You might say Paul George. You wouldn't say, you know, the guy that did all these things, that's going to be Oladipo. You wouldn't have said that, but it is. It is. And last night, especially this, last night he was asked a softball question by by Kevin Bowen, and it was the right question. Look, I ask softball questions all the time. It was the right question, Victor. You're in your last year of contract. Do you, do you, do you see yourself being here long term? And Oladipo said, I can't worry about that right now. I'm not thinking about that right now. He talked for about 150 words. And not once did he reference the Pacers, the team, the franchise, or even did he say the word here. Not once. And, again, that's the kind of thing that had I told you that was going to happen in the, in the, in the preseason, which NBA player do you think that's going to say that? Oladipo's not in your list. That was him. Long story to say, is this Paul George all over again in that he doesn't really want to be here if he can't get the max contract and, the, and he doesn't deserve it. So if he's leaving, they got to think about trading him. They just, I mean, you have to. Sorry. Oh, I think at this point, I think at this point, you have to trade him. Um, and look, let's take all that stuff out of the equation. Let's take all. I don't disagree with any of what you said with the missteps. I, I think Oladipo's made and his team have made a lot. of, And I'm not talking about the Pacers. The people around him have made some missteps this year, for sure. Um, but taking all that off, just looking at him on the court, clearly he's not the player that he was. And he says he's not at 100%. I'll take his word for that. But even if Oladipo gets back to 100% at 28 years old, I don't think – there were questions, Greg, before the injury that he could ever be the player that he was consistently in the 2017-18 season. The, the, the third-team All-NBA, second-team All-NBA defense, the whole deal. Um, and I, I just don't think – you can't end up with another Tobias Harris contract where you're paying Oladipo $30 million or whatever it is and, and he's, if you're going to pay somebody that level of money, he has to be an all-NBA player. 
And I don't think Victor Oladipo is a top 10 to 15 NBA player. I don't. Um, and if he comes back next year and he's fully healthy and maybe you give him the benefit of the doubt, I think the Pacers are actually in a, in a pretty decent spot here because I don't think you trade him this offseason because I don't, I don't think you're getting full value for him. I think what you have to do is, is risk, roll the dice, start next season with Oladipo, and if he really blows up, then deal him before the trade deadline to somebody else because I think you, you need to find a way to sell him at his highest value. And I don't think his highest value is right now. Now, there's a chance his value could go even lower, and you could end up in a, in a Paul George situation where you're desperate to deal him, and other teams know that you're desperate to deal him. But that's kind of how I would approach it if I was the, the Pacers. I, I just don't – I don't think you can pay him, and I can't imagine something happening next year which convinces me that he's the guy to pay. No, he, he's had flashes um, in, in the playoffs. He had flashes where he looked like the guy that he's been before. He had flashes, but but not consistently. And, and I don't know what's fair. Is it fair to say it's only been a year and a half since the injury and, and you got to give him more time? Or is it fair to say it's been a year and a half, you are what you are. And he is what he is, and what he is is pretty good, very good. But what he is is, is not is a max contract player, at least not on this team. I can see the Victor we saw in the postseason, that guy, if that's all he ever is, which is not bad, I can see that guy getting a max contract from somebody, maybe as their number three player. You know, I don't know how teams do this, but they can fit contracts under the salary cap or they'll just go over. I can see him being given max money by a team that thinks they're one really good player away from winning it all. I can see that, but what you can't do is be the Pacers and give max money to, to that guy. You just can't do it. Um, so they're in a in a weird spot, and and Vic's in a weird spot, and and I feel like uh, I feel bad for him because at this time two years ago, he was very clearly a max contract guy right here. He was clearly our guy. We were his city. He was a top fifteen player. He was an all star. You know, it was obvious what was going to happen. But then the injury happens, and he sees his three hundred million dollars just go up in smoke. And I think what you've seen is the the, uh, the shock it's had on him. And that's why he's kind of acting in a way that he's not been horrible. I'm not calling him a miserable human being, but he's not. You know, Victor Oladipo in two years ago was like Prince Charming. He was too good to be true. And now he's just kind of more like, oh, he's kind of like everybody else, which is disappointing. Yeah, I, I think specifically the bubble situation, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in. You know what I mean? That, that was a real... Uh, People are going to remember that the way that that was handled. It was it was just poorly done. But it's just life in the NBA. You know, you have a lot of these guys like Oladipo who are kind of in this purgatory where they're not good enough to be a franchise level. Certainly not good enough to be like uh, you know a Harden, a Luca, you know somebody like that. But they're not good enough to to be a transcendent player. But they're not bad. But you still have to pay them like they're a transcendent player. You know what I mean? It's it's like Demar Derozan. Demar Derozan is a really nice NBA player. If you're paying Demar Derozan thirty million dollars and asking him to be your best guy, you're screwed. <laughs> you know, you're you're not going anywhere with that guy. And and I think the same can sort of be said with Oladipo. Oladipo is a really nice player. You know, I Greg, I think I might say the same about Paul George. Even though I think Paul George is a superior player to Oladipo. If, if George is your 30 million max guy and he's your number one, which I know the Clippers aren't asking him to be, are you winning a championship with that guy? No, right? No, no chance. But even if, look, if Paul George, you know, Paul George is almost Jacoby Brissett, although he's better. But Paul George is, he's kind of one way most of the time. And if he could be that way all the time, he really would be great. But the problem is in crunch time for Jacoby, it was the fourth quarter. For Paul George, it's the postseason and the fourth quarter, especially this one for sure. 
he's just a different guy. When the, the higher the pressure, so he tends to be a different guy. So that, that's who Paul George is, and it's all falling down on his head right now. And, and honestly, I'm not enjoying it at all, um, even though I've been hard on Paul. Um, I, what I don't like about the world, social media world, is that Twitter has become just kind of by itself. Twitter is, which is a weird thing to say, but Twitter, Twitter is a bully. You know, not Twitter itself isn't attacking you, but, but but no one gets attacked anymore on Twitter by one person. If you're worthy of being attacked, you're attacked by ten thousand people, and at that point, it becomes it's too much. You know, it's it's yeah. that's that's mass behavior, that's mass bullying, and and I get it. Paul George makes thirty million, and oh, he ought to be able to handle it. Hey, tough guy, try it. Go out there and, and try that. You know, try try to be that kid from Center Grove who pretended to be a flopping fish. Uh, when Armin Franklin, no, no, not Armin Franklin. When um, the other Franklin kid, I forget his name. Sorry, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Cathedral yeah. was uh, yeah. shooting free throws, and he had epilepsy, and and people thought the kid from Center Grove was was mimicking an epileptic seizure. And I don't think he was, but even if he was, he wasn't attacked by 12 people on Twitter saying, "Hey, guy, you're a jerk." He was attacked by an entire state, and that's just too much. You know, the 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 crime has to meet the uh, the punishment, and in Paul George's case, the punishment's way too high. And I'm getting off track here, but. Anyway, no, Greg, it's it's the ex-girlfriend thing for me. It's I have no ill will towards Paul George. I would like like to see him be happy. Um, But you don't want your ex-girlfriend to end up with a a supermodel who lives in a 5000 square foot house and has a boat. You know what I mean? So I I think (laughs) I want to see Paul George do well. Would I like to see Paul George raise the O'Brien trophy? You know, I. That would probably sting a little bit if I was a Pacers fan, I would think. But th- there are some people here in this city and, and people listening to this podcast who um, who hate Paul George and will always hate Paul George. And he'll never be remembered fondly here by a majority of fans. And, and I can understand that with the way that he handled his exit. Oh, I don't like him. I don't like him. I just yeah. don't like what's happening to him online. And by the way, the kid from Cathedral um, with epilepsy, that's James Franklin. I don't. I Forgive me for spacing out on his first name, but... But yeah, Paul George will never be popular here. I think in Oklahoma City, they probably don't like him, be my guess. And my guess is, whether he ever leaves the Clippers or not, that when his time there is done, they're not going to like him. I mean, he's just not likable. Paul George is not a guy. And the reason you know, he's not likable is he tries too damn hard to be liked. And you can it's see A-Rod. that... It's Right, right. It's A-Rod. You can tell that you're not, you're not a nice person or charming or whatever because you're a nice or charming person. You're just trying to find a way to make us like you. And that's just hard to like. It's I, a guy like that. I cover my face, my hands with my eyes with my hands. Like I don't even want to look at you because you're so obviously not comfortable in your own skin that I don't even want to look at you. That's who Paul George is. Yeah, it's just not genuine. I think is what yes. it is. You know, A Arod is a perfectly nice guy. He never wasn't a nice guy, but you just felt like it was all fake. <laughs> you know, every right. time he opened his mouth, he was playing a part. Uh, let's move on to the Indianapolis 500. You had a column about the uh, the finish which was anticlimactic uh, to Kumasato winning the race under yellow. But you think IndyCar did the wrong thing by not red flagging that? Well, I mean, I, I think probably. Um, what I wrote, you know, I, my tweet, I tweeted my story out and said, you know, I called the Indy 500 a debacle. And in my story, if people read, um, I made it a point that it's for three months. You know, this thing was, it didn't start in May. I mean, it's supposed to be in May. It didn't happen because of the virus. Uh, they tried to have fans, then finally, you know, didn't. Then you finally have the race with no fans, and it finishes under a yellow flag. In summation, in total, that's a debacle. Um, 
I'm not trying to back away from what I wrote. I, I don't like it ending yellow. I, I, I like my, the entire point of my column wasn't necessarily that, and I don't want to make it the point here that that IndyCar screwed up. Like I, I mean, I don't like what they did, but it's bigger than that. It's just um, what a disaster the whole damn IndyCar, the Indy 500 experience was. Nobody was there. It wasn't on time, and then we don't even get a finish. I mean, nothing went right. Is my point. Nothing went right, including the finish. Yeah, it was. It was a really tough. I, I'm actually going to play devil's advocate a little bit uh, for IndyCar and for the folks at IMS. It was a really tough situation to try to organize and handle. And uh, look, was the 50% capacity thing always ridiculous? Yes. So was the 25%. Like that, even suggesting that you were going to have tens of thousands of people there was always a ridiculous notion. Greg, you and I talked about that. That that was a ridiculous thing. But I think if you're looking at it from their viewpoint. Even if there's just a little tiny chance that that could be pulled off, you want to keep that door ajar, I think. And so they kept the door ajar, they kept the door ajar, they kept the door ajar, and then finally the door got slammed. And I still think that overall, I thought the race was fine. I, I thought it was, I didn't think it was necessarily an amazing race. I thought it was a good race. Um, I thought you had some drama. Uh I thought the product itself ended up being okay, despite the fact that there weren't any fans. And I think qualifying and all that stuff, practice, I was real skeptical about all that stuff, that that the teams and the drivers would be ready. And it appeared like they were ready. It was just surreal to not see any people in the building. Um, so overall, I, I think that they did the best that they could when it comes to the product that was on the track. You know, we can sit here and argue about some of the decisions that they made along the way. But I think overall, um, you were just hoping to survive without it being a failure. And I don't think it was any by any means a failure on Sunday. I think you had a legitimate Indianapolis 500. And I wasn't so sure we were going to have a legitimate Indianapolis 500 a month ago. You know, I, I don't know how legit it was. I'm, I'm with you on the first, I mean, all but the last five minutes, 10 minutes. Well, no, not, no, I'm not going to go that far. But there were plenty of moments in there. Like there was plenty of, there was Scott Dixon saved it. Dixon versus Rossi was just awesome. That was awesome. That was awesome. It was awesome because we were all thinking, man, this is going to be great at the end. They're trading the lead and they're saving fuel and they're 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 trying to distance themselves from the pack and it's going to come down to these two guys. And, and they both know it. They're both saying, hey, it's me and you. It's me and you. It's me and you. We're going to play nice for about an hour and a half and in the last 10 minutes we're going to try and kick each other's ass. But then Rossi, you know, he had some bad luck or he did whatever and he's out. Then it became, okay, Dixon and Sato, they're going to duel. They're going to duel. Holy cow, it's going to happen. We're going to get this great duel. And then we get the yellow, and it's over. And so we we were teased with the possibility of a great race, but we did not get a great race. We did not get a great race. And I don't, you know, what I said earlier about uh, Twitter is a bully. Um, it is, and sort of that happened. Well, let me say this again: IndyCar fans, and this is really weird to me because, and I saw this with UFC fans too about ten years ago. Is that when you have when you're the fan of a niche sport and and you know you're a niche sport and you kind of resent being a niche sport you resent the fact that more people don't love your sport you kind of take on this persona I don't I don't mean everybody Lord knows but I am generalizing but this is generally true you kind of take on this air of superiority like I know my sport better than you don't talk to me about this sport I'm the expert you're not IndyCar fans are that way so when you when someone like me who's been in town for six years and didn't watch a 500 until I got here writes what I wrote, they, that, you know, the, the race was a disappointment. They're like, Hey, you don't know the sport. No, it wasn't. And like, shut up. It was, 
just because you know the ins and outs of it more than I do, and I guarantee you, you know more about gearboxes and and uh, attenuators and whatever than I do. That was a disappointment. And just because you've been covering, you've been watching the sport for forty years, doesn't mean that what we just saw wasn't. So shut up. But um, anyway, niche sport fans go on Twitter and become bullies. And I don't, I don't. Maybe it's because that's the only time in life they can do that because they know that their sport is not on the radar for the most part. And so here's a chance. People are attacking my sport. They're wrong. No, no, no. We're right. You have a niche sport, and we love it when it's going good. But that wasn't good, and we're going to attack it. And don't tell me we're wrong because you've been watching it for 40 years. You know, I've been watching my son longer than anybody. I'm 50. My sons are 25 and 23. I know them better than anybody. But when they're wrong, I know it. So, hey, your sport was wrong. And uh, know it. I just think, selfishly, is it anticlimactic to finish under yellow? Yeah, of course it is. You know, I want to see a green flag finish. So does everybody. You, you want it to finish under green. You don't, you don't want it to be, you know, them rolling through over the finish line. It sucks. I've, I've been to several Indy 500s, all three of Dario's wins, uh, Tony Kanan's win, um, Weldon's first win. I don't think the second win when Hildebrand hit the wall actually finished under caution. I might be wrong. And all of those were anticlimactic, not counting 2011, were anticlimactic. Even when it was the result that I wanted, like TK in 2013 was great. He was a fan favorite. But looking back at it, I don't think IndyCar had any choice, Greg. I, I think the damage, Piggott slammed the hell out of that thing, and I don't think they could get it fixed right to put the cars back out there again uh, with, what, five laps to go or whatever it was. So I, I think they made the, the, the only decision that they really could make. Um, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't disappointing to not see a shootout. I'll say this. I don't think Dixon had anything for Sato. I think Sato's winning that race no matter what. I don't think that they were that he was going to catch him. But I would have liked to have the opportunity to have seen that. But I don't think that that opportunity was there. I'll give you I'll give you that about the Sato Dixon duel. It, it did seem like while Dixon had I thought the best car on the track until the last three or four competitive laps when Sato just kind of seemed like he had more. At the same time, Dixon his team told him let Sato go. I mean th- they gave up the lead. Because they thought they were going to trade it back and forth maybe a little bit, just like he was trading with Rossi. And they, were, they also thought that Sato didn't have enough gas. They thought, because he pitted one lap before Dixon. Dixon thought he waited to the last minute to pit, and Sato pitted before that. So Dixon thought that, that Sato wasn't going to make it. So that's another reason why he was kind of letting him go. So I'm not, I, while I think that you're probably right, Sato had a better car, I'm not sure we know that. I'm not sure we know that. But also, I'd like to know more about how much time it would have taken to fix that, that mess. Because it was a mess. I realized they could just put it in red and just race in t- five minutes. It was going to take time to fix it. But was it going to be an hour? And if it was going to be an hour, why does that even matter? The, is the only reason it matters is that NBC wouldn't have waited? Because if that's the point, who cares? Although, yeah. get, granted, this year there was no crowd. NBC was the only fans. Therefore, they want to see the finish. But do they want? But if all you showed them is a yellow car finish, you're not showing them anything anyway. So... I, I, th- I think the I think the decision was made in part because there were no fans, and the only people watching were watching on TV, and they knew NBC wasn't going to wait an hour, so they said, "Screw it, we're going to finish it right now." That that's what I think. I think TV made the decision for them, or they made it for TV, and I think that's a grave, grave mistake. I'm thrilled for Sato because uh, he's a great guy and was a great champion the first time around, and I'm sure will be again. But it's funny, Greg, because Sato's had a very good career. But he's almost become like the Eli Manning of IndyCar now, where he's won the Indianapolis 500 twice, and I, I think he's he's never come close to winning a points championship. Uh, he's finished in the top ten a couple of times. But, you know, here's a guy who's, who's had a very good career, but he's won the world's biggest race twice. 
And it, it just kind of that popped into my head after Sunday. I was trying to think, you know, what would Sato really compare to in other sports? And, and I think Eli Manning is somewhat of an appropriate comparison. No, I don't think so. Because you Eli Manning. So? No, because Eli Manning is borderline Pro Bowl guy his whole career. With, with you know, not every year, but I mean, he was a borderline Pro Bowl guy every year. I mean, he was he was a great player. Not quite Hall of Fame great, but close. And then he got, and then the Super Bowls put him over the top. Sato's not that. Sato is, and I don't have his stats in front of me, but Sato is, uh, I'm trying to think. I don't want to undersell him too much. The problem here is that when you write what I wrote about how the, we got cheated out of a great finish, blah, 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 I immediately had people, Americans and Japanese people, attacking me. Would you say that if they'd given the win to you know, an American? Like, well, what? You're not talking to Trump, okay? You're not talking to somebody who thinks America first and America only. Like, I've never been that guy ever, and I'm not now, and I don't care who's in the car. I'm, I care that we got cheated out of a finish, so don't be stupid. Um, so I don't, I'm trying to be careful with Sato. I don't want to compare him to Connor Daly, and, and it turns out, you know, I don't want to be wrong about that, but Sato's not Eli Manning. He's not. He's uh, he's very talented. I'm trying to think. I, I'm not, trying to think of, like, an NFL player with great skill but just never quite, you know, had a couple flashes, but never really did a whole lot. He's basically like uh, Deron Carter in one training camp, uh, although he does the Super Bowl twice. So that's a bad example, too. I don't know. Sato is Sato's well, very strange. Greg, you would never – Eli Manning, the two wins over the Patriots were amazing, and he's a two-time Super Bowl MVP. I don't know if Eli Manning ever once was one of the five best quarterbacks in the NFL. In fact, I'll say, right, I don't think Eli Manning was ever one of the five best quarterbacks in the NFL, and I think he had several seasons where he wasn't one of the ten best. You know, those two Giants teams, th that was a great story. Those two Giants teams were 10-6 and six and 9-7 and seven that won the Super Bowl. They just caught fire, and Eli was great in the playoffs, and he made the great throw to Tyree and the throw to Manningham and, and all that stuff. But I, I just think that, you know, you take off – he probably is going to be in the Hall of Fame because of his last name and because of his longevity. So he's up there top 10 in a lot of the passing categories. But the reason why I chose him as an example is that Sato has always been, I think, one of the 10 best drivers in the series. But he's never been one of the elite guys in the series, uh, like like Power, like Dixon, like you know, Frank Heedy, Kanan, uh, some of these other guys that, that he's raced against. Yet he's a two-time champion. He's won the biggest race in the world twice. Yeah, you know, I... He's won. I'm looking right now. He's won six IndyCar races. So he has won, you know, obviously the 500 twice, and then and four others. And his season, his best season finish, only top ten once. It looks like. So I don't know. I mean, he he's obviously very very good. He's obviously very very good. But and and he's got and everybody will talk about how much talent he's got. And he's reckless and fearless, and and reckless and fearless wins, or at least he can win, but also can can crash not only you but other people. I know that Sato's not very popular among some drivers. They think he's dangerous. They were talking about this. Um, heck, what's his name? Uh, Dixon mentioned it. Dixon's so classy. No, no, one Dixon, sorry. It was Rossi. Rossi's not classy at all. <laughs> I love Rossi, but he's not classy. Rossi was talking about Sato on the TV afterwards saying they didn't penalize him for all the times he blocked people on restarts. You know, Sato is known as kind of a reckless guy who, who gets people in trouble besides himself. He takes people down that aren't just himself. But that's why I'm so down on him is that I know what they say in the paddock. I know in the paddock they think that he's very talented but very reckless, and it's just really not fair to the rest of the field to have a guy like that you know, running amok, and every now and then it turns out for him and he wins the 500, but by and large he kind of runs amok. 
He's a nice kid, although he's 40-something. I mean, he sounds like a kid, but he's in his 40s. But nice young man, younger than me, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think he's great. I, you know, I think he's one of the all-time flukes, and I, I realize Eli Manning is kind of flukish too. I wish I had a great comparison, but I, I don't. But I, <laughs> I think he's a fluke. I think he's very good. He's a good driver with a very fluky couple of wins. I just don't think – I think that that race, while there is a lot of – there is luck and circumstance involved in it, I think to win that race twice um, makes it not a fluke. But I get, I get what you're saying because you look at some of the other champions and what they've done in, in the actual IndyCar championship, like Dixon's won it umpteen times or you know some of these other ones, um, and Sato hasn't had that success. Um, then again, Sato hasn't always been – I know he's with Andretti Autosport for a little bit, you know, Ray Hall, uh, Letterman Racing. Um, he hasn't always been, you know, one of the top cars on the top teams. Um, A.J. Foyt, he ran with for a while as well. Um, but still, I, I think here in Indy, he's always run pretty well. Even, you know, one of those Dario wins, he put himself into the wall, even though he was running P2 um, going into the very last lap. You can check out Greg's columns. Uh, Pacers go down without a whimper against the Heat. Uh, the caution and the finish at the end of the Indianapolis 500, if you missed that one. Uh, Oladipo, um, you had a, a really good piece on Kevin Warren, the, the Big Ten commissioner from last week, if you missed that. Um, anything that you can tell us that you're working on for this week? Well, the story just posted, actually. Of course, we're taping this right now, but uh, Tuesday around noon. But the story just posted on on what the Pacers need to do this offseason. And there's a lot on Oladipo. There's a lot on Miles Turner and Sabonis, and there's – you know the coaching staff. I mean, this it's a hard, it's going to be a hard off season. So I wrote about that, and we'll see how, where we'll see how that goes. But always fun talking to you, Derek Schultz. Same to you, my man. And we'll do it next time. See you then. All right. Bye.